So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 10. We are not in Matthew 5, 6, or 7, which we have been in for almost nine months. We're actually out there, and now we're moving forward in this bigger series that we've called Disciple. And we just finished up living the life. Last week, if you were here, we were in the last part of Matthew 7 and talked about Jesus challenging us to make a decision of how we build our life and if we build it on sand or on a rock, and that having to do with obedience to his words and what he said to us. And so transitioning from that, today we begin a new series within the series. In Matthew 10, we're going to go through all of Matthew 10 together, where Jesus shifts gears and now he starts to address his disciples about his mission in the world. And so as we, we make this shift this morning, this is, I've been looking forward to this Sunday for quite some time and praying about it because this is not just about reciting some words that Jesus said a couple thousand years ago. This is about looking at what Jesus has said and applying it to our current context in our church because the words that Jesus said to his disciples 2,000 years ago are the words that he's saying to us today. And because of that, we need to be willing to embrace that. So and the, reason, the other reason that I've looked so forward to this day is this, this is kind of for me, in my mind, this is a marker Sunday where, not to downplay the significance of any other Sunday, but there's, there's this process of shifting our understanding of ourselves and our church that God is at work in, and this is part of it. And let me explain what I mean by that. When, we, when it comes to mission, or even the term missionary, normally when you hear the word missionary, you have a certain idea of what that kind of person is. Now, some of you go to the extreme of like looking at the old film footage where the missionary was one with the pith helmet and the shorts and the machete hacking their way through the jungle to share the gospel. Anybody remember that kind of imagery? Of a, of, and they're like, yeah, that's a missionary. A little bit off, a little crazy, wants to go another country. You go get him. That's kind of, I'll pray and I'll give, but you go. That's kind of our, our mentality. And so when we think about missionary, we think, oh, that's only somebody who's called and they have a certain gift set and God spoke to them so they're, so they're supposed to go and they're supposed to do the missions work. I'm called to be back here at the church. That's what I'm supposed to do and stay where I'm at. That, the crazy people go do that. We applaud them, but that's not for me. There's nowhere in the Bible that you can find that kind of theology or that kind of mentality. It's nowhere. That's something that we've created where we have taken this thing called Christianity and we separate mission for a handful of people to go do, while the rest of us, honestly, we just do our time, we get our salvation, we have our fire insurance so we don't go to hell, we just wait patiently and try not to do too many bad things till Jesus comes back, and then we're like, hey, we're in, this is great. That's what happens. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you a, probably a disclaimer and maybe an apology up front. I have not had too much caffeine today, okay? It's going to seem like I have. But I'm pretty passionate about this because this is something that God is doing in our church. This is, God, this is something God is doing in his church globally. He's ramping up the mission that for some, some of us, we've forgotten about. It's become so much about us that we've forgotten that God has not saved us just to save us. God has saved us for a purpose and mission that's bigger than our lives. And that's what we want to we talk about this morning. When you look at the word mission, just in your average dictionary, and then you can flip over to a thesaurus and you can see antonyms, the opposite of mission. When I was looking that up this week, just out of curiosity, one of the first words that come up as the opposite of mission is the word retreat. And there's, it's interesting because on a number of levels, it's so accurate. So mission is about what? Going and doing and risking and being about something bigger than your life. And what is retreat? Retreat is about safety and rest and comfortable, being comfortable and moving away from the front line. And I think that's sometimes what we end up doing, is that we think once that we've given our life to Jesus, it's about living in retreat. 
that I just to pull back and I just wait because I've got what I need, and then eventually Jesus comes back. But Jesus has called us all to mission. He's not called us to live in retreat. He's not called us to live in comfort and safety and ease. That is something that maybe we've created this little element of Christianity that says, come to Jesus, he takes all your problems away, makes you comfortable until he comes back someday. That's not biblical. But that's something that we believe somehow and we live that out. So this morning, um, you're probably wondering, oh no, here it comes. Here comes a message I'm not ready for. But I want you to, to understand that Jesus has called you and I to be a part of his mission. So before we jump into the passage, understand the big picture. Jesus loves us. God the Father loves us so much that he wanted to be with us. So that's why he sent Jesus. Understand, the reason that you and I are alive is because God wants people to be reconciled back to him. That is the only reason you and I are alive today. It's not because the kings are on at 5 o'clock tonight and they're going to win game 7. It's not because you have your dream job or live in the house that you want. It's not because you're graduating from college and going into a career that you want. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that God loves people and there are billions of people on this planet that are living unreconciled lives with God. And God loves them so much he doesn't want them to live without him in this world and the next world. That's all of human history. All of that's why we exist. And the reason we know that is because if you and I, if God didn't want us to be about his mission, you know what he would do? He would save us, which means we'd come to faith in Jesus, we'd confess our sin, we'd repent, we'd choose to follow him, and then he'd kill us on the spot. Right? Because he's already done what he needed to do, which is what? Get us into his family, be reconciled back to him, so why not just go start eternity right now? Why are we still here? Because there's more left to be done. Because there's other people who have yet to be reconciled back to God. And apart from you and I participating in God's mission, they will never know. They'll never experience it. And so for you and I, today is this kind of this shift in shifting that the missionary is not the person out there. The missionary is the person sitting right here, right now. That God calls all of us to this. So jumping into Matthew chapter 10, let me read verse 1 through 4 and then we'll walk through it together this morning. So Matthew writes, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. And gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter. His brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We just want to stop there. We're going to go through all, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 10, but we're just going to stop with those first four, four, first four verses today. Excuse me. So before we, we unpack all the specifics, I want, to, want you and I to capture, I want to go over four things that have to do, the context of what's going on, of what Jesus is, how he's calling his disciples to mission, and what's going on around this, to understand that. So the first thing in kind of this context of what Jesus is doing, what's going on around the circumstances of Jesus about to speak to his disciples about being a part of mission. And they come in the form of questions. The first one is this, is when did Jesus call his disciples to mission? <clears throat> so we pick up in verse 1. There's a whole lot of chapters before chapter 10 of Matthew. So what is the context? What's the timing that Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples? So we, were just, we just spent a lot of time in Matthew 5 through 7. But if you go back to Matthew 4, it says Jesus was led out into the desert. Where he fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a long time to go without food. And then by the Holy Spirit, he comes back. The enemy tempts him, and, and Jesus resists. And then Jesus enters into his ministry and mission on this planet. He's, he, he engages that. That's when he calls his disciples, and, and you read through the Gospels, you can see that. And so what's happened up until this point is Jesus 
has been demonstrating to his disciples, these guys he's called, let me show you what my mission looks like. Let me show you what your life's going to be about. So what are they witnessing? Can you imagine hanging out with Jesus day and night for months and years? Seeing what he does, asking him questions, seeing how he thinks, seeing how he processes, seeing what he does, seeing that all the time. They are witnessing this all the time. And so with the context that Jesus is about to have this conversation is, they have just seen firsthand how the mission is lived out. It's better than any classroom you can ever go to. It's better than any textbook that you could ever read. They've seen Jesus, the God of the universe, in flesh and blood, living out before them what their life is supposed to be about, what God's mission is in the world. They're seeing it. And now he's going to come to them and say, listen, this is what you're going to do. You've seen it in action. You've seen it happen. You've asked questions. You've been freaked out. You've been overwhelmed. And now you get to go and do what I've done. That's what's amazing about the way God works in our life. Now, just, just for a moment, step, take a step back. I know I'm reading into this, but, but just, they're humans like us. Those 12 that are listed. Just, can you imagine when Jesus engages in this conversation, he's going to tell them, he's going to give them this power and this authority, he's going to tell them this is what they're going to do. What is going on in their mind? They are freaked out. They have to be. I don't think any of them are thinking, oh yeah, we can do this. This is a piece of cake. This is easy. I can do this before breakfast. No, I don't think they were thinking that. I think they're thinking, I don't know if he's got the right guys. I don't know if we can do this. I, I mean, I've seen Jesus do, I mean, he's made a, a man who can't walk. Now he can walk. There's a blind man who can see. Now he can see. And there's a demon someone had. Now it's cast out. We're going to do these things. I don't think we can do this. I, I'm, that's fear. You've seen it done, but now you're afraid. I can't do this. That is, that is consistent with humanity. We are afraid of things that we think that we cannot accomplish, even when God tells us we can one of my earliest memories of, of school was in kindergarten when our teacher, we were doing kind of a craft section, and she wanted us to make a stoplight, like out of construction paper. So we had to cut out a rec- black rectangle, and then we had to cut out, you know, the red, yellow, green circles for the lights. And so she was up in front of the class, and she was demonstrating this. And as I was watching her, the only thing I could think of was, there's no way I can do this. I can't cut at all. I mean, I, I can't even color within the lines. You know, you give me a sharp object, I'm in danger. You know, I can't do this. And so much so, as she's doing it, anxiety is just overwhelming. And I just broke into tears and I just start sobbing. And all the kids are looking at me like, what is wrong with you? And so when she finished, my teacher finally just finished explaining. She comes over, she sits down, she goes, what's wrong? And I'm looking at the pieces of construction paper in front of me. I said, I can't do that. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I can't, I can't cut a circle. I can't do what you're doing. There's no way I can make a stoplight. And I'm like crying. And she goes, yes, you you can do this. So she picks up the red paper. And I still remember this. And she says, watch. And so she shows me how to draw a circle on the red paper. And then she shows me how to cut from the side to get to the center. And then start following the line all the way around to cut the red circle out. And I remember as I watched her doing that, then I had the yellow or green. I can't remember. And so I realized, you know what? My circle's not going to look as good as her. She's done a few thousand of these as a teacher. But I thought, I can at least attempt that. And I remember doing that. And I cut around. And of course, my yellow circle was nowhere as good as her red circle. But I remember I ended up doing something that I always thought, there's no way in the world that I can do this. And when it comes to God's mission, you know how many times we do that to ourselves? And we'll talk more about this in a little bit. God says we can, and you and I say we can't. This is God speaking. I think he knows a little bit more than we do. Second question. Second question, look at the first part of verse 1 of the context of God's call to mission for all of us, is how did he call his disciples to mission? So it says in in the first part of verse 1, Jesus called 
his 12 disciples. Now, when you and I think of called, we have a different interpretation, understanding of what Jesus meant or what Paul, Matthew read, meant when he said called. We think of calling on the phone. We think of calling them, hey, come over here. I want to hang out with you. Or, hey, I have something to tell you. No, the word called is a loaded term. Matthew writes this because the word called actually had to do with calling somebody to yourself so that you could have a face-to-face encounter where you could confront them about something. It was very intense. It wasn't a little fun, lighthearted conversation. Jesus was calling his disciples to himself to get in their face and say, this is what your life's going to be about. This is what your life's going to look like. This is what my mission is. It wasn't an option. It wasn't, hey, when you have time, can you come join me? I've got something to, to bounce off you. It was, no, I'm calling you to do this. And what this is, you and I have to understand, is this is like the draft. And here's what we have to understand. If you have said yes to Jesus in your life, you have said yes to his mission. You're like, oh, wait, wait a second. Nobody told me that. I didn't sign any contract. I just want the salvation part, not the mission part. That's what we'd be fine with. But so you and I have to understand this. Jesus is moving his disciples to say, hey, I called you back on the seashore when you were fishermen, but I called you to be what? Fishers of men. He didn't say, I called you so you could be saved and comfortable and wait till I come back. He said, I called you so that you can bring other people into a reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. That's what he says to us today. You might have signed up for the salvation part, but guess what you got in, in, in on top of that? You get the mission too. Because you and I react to what God has done in us, and we'll talk about what that looks like in our lives. But he called them. It's the draft. It's not an option. You know, when you turn 18 now, you still have to sign up for the selective service. Now, we don't know. We know we're not in a world war right now, and the draft is not in effect. You're not getting called into the military if you're not into the military. But you don't really have an option, do you? If Uncle Sam calls you, you can head to Canada, but that's not going to work out too well for you. But you are what? It's not like, ah, yeah, if I feel like it, I got, you know, I want to work out my career. I'm just going to get married. No. If the government calls and you're drafted, you don't have a choice. It's the same thing with following Jesus, but his offer is a whole lot better. He, he, he invites us to come and follow him. And guess what? If we die in the process, we actually win. We do. If we give up our life and we follow him and we lose it in the process, Jesus says, you actually gain life, which is better than anything the military could ever promise you and I. But understanding that this is not an option. When he's saying to his disciples, he's calling them. They know this is the real deal. He's not saying, here, let me weigh the options. Let me give you the pros and cons. He's saying, no, this is what your life's going to be like. I'm calling you to do this. And that's important because you and I usually like to say, oh, the missionary, that's for the person who's called. Jesus called everybody. He called everybody. He didn't just call the missionaries. He calls everybody, which leads to the third question. Third thing of the context for the call to mission is, what did he call his disciples to do on mission? So going on in verse 1, it says, He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. What was, Jesus, what was Matthew describing? He's describing that what Jesus had called his disciples to do was to reverse the impact of sin and brokenness and the enemy on humanity. To heal sickness, to set people free, to do things in power, the power of God that only can be done by God. It's the process of bringing people back into wholeness. It's the process of being people, people being reconciled back to God. He gave them the power to do that. And this is what's crazy. Remember, these are a group of guys watching Jesus do this, and now he's saying, now it's your turn. You get to do this. They're all thinking, there's just no way. There's no way. How can Jesus say that? Because Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just to bring a point of clarity, you know so many times when we talk about Jesus, oh, well, he was God, so he could do anything. So he, 
you know, I can't be like Jesus because he was God and I'm not God, so I can't be like that. You know, when Jesus lived on the earth, he lived in the fullness of his humanity. Do you understand that? He lived as a human being. He was fully God, but he never used who he was as God for his own benefit. He lived under the power of the Holy Spirit just as any human being can. And that's why when he says to his disciples and he says to you and I, I'm going to give you the power and the authority to do this. He says, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit who I lived by as well so that you can do the same things that I've done. Listen to what he says in, in John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus' words. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Are you kidding me? Jesus said to his disciples, You see me do miracles? You see me cast out demons? You see me restore people? You see me bring people back to life? Your works will surpass mine. Are you crazy? No, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he knew what humanity can do when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to John, 1 John 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, But if anyone obeys his word, the love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Just think for a moment. We take on the title Christian. You know, that's a label that our culture gives us. It's a label that we give ourselves. Are you a Christian? Well, yes, I'm a Christian. Or no, I'm a non-Christian. If we take on the title Christian, what is the core word in Christian? Christ? That's the core. So if we take on that label, should not our life reflect his life? See, when you and I say, I'm a follower of Jesus, when you follow somebody or allow someone to influence you, you start to look and think and act like them. That's what it means to follow. If you don't look like the person you call a leader, then you're not following them. And when we say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, does your life reflect anything? Now, I, as I say, I'm, this is the same for me. I look at my life and say, does, it, does that area look like Jesus? No, it doesn't look like Jesus. Why does it not look like Jesus? Because maybe I'm not surrendering to him in that area. Maybe I've chosen to make about my agenda and not his agenda. But if you and I truly are followers of Jesus, that means that the mission that Jesus lived while he was on the planet is the mission that we get to live now too. Our life should look the same. We should see miraculous things happening. We should see the power of God show up. We should see other people coming back to God and being reconciled back to him. Why? Because we look like Jesus. People should be able to tell you're a Christian without you ever opening your mouth. Because they look like that guy that they read about in the Bible. Or maybe years ago when they went to church, they looked, saw in Sunday school or something. That something reflects of who he is. And then there's a fourth thing in terms of the context of Jesus' call to mission. And that is, who did he call to mission? Verses 2 through 4, Jesus gives us the list. I want you to just take it, we're going to take a moment, we're going to go through this list of who Jesus picked. This is, this is, what's, this is God's sovereignty in our, our, in our humanity. We would not pick who Jesus picks. I guarantee it. None of us would have. So let's break down the list. So the list starts off with two sets of brothers. So we have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. What are, who are these guys? They're fishermen. What are fishermen? These are, these are blue-collar, simple guys who don't have any kind of formal education, who've probably grown up in the fishing industry, watched their dad or even their grandfather do this, and so that's just the family tradition, so they're doing that. It's not like the weekend warrior who goes out and throws his lure in the water and catches fish. That's not the kind of fishing we're talking about. It's not recreational. It is their livelihood and if you've ever been around someone who's a fisherman, it's not an easy job. 
It's a hard job, and you stink, and you sweat, and your livelihood is based on your ability to catch fish and know where they are, and fish sometimes outsmart you. It's not an easy job, but it's, it's not something that someone would say, hey, I, I really aspire to be a fisherman. That's not, not the way they would work. It's almost like that's by default. That's what they end up with. So Jesus, the first four guys, fishermen. The next two in the list, probably same thing, Philip and Bartholomew. By what we could figure out, these guys are common men, probably most likely fishermen. Simple, blue-collar, uneducated people. That's who Jesus chose. Six out of 12, all right? I guarantee those six would never make our list. They wouldn't even make the cut. Not even the first cut. Then we go on a list, and you see Thomas. What do we know about Thomas? Thomas doubted, didn't he? Thomas is a skeptic or a critic. He wants proof. There are great moments where Thomas says, hey, we'll follow Jesus even if it means we give our life. And then there's other moments where Thomas says, no way, I don't believe it. Not unless I can touch it. I can experience it. I can feel it. Jesus knew that was in Thomas, but he still chose him. And then Jesus picks Matthew. Matthew. Now, we might have picked Matthew because Matthew was rich. And we think, you know, it'd be nice to have a wealthy guy on our team. He could fund all the mission, right? But not this guy. Not Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He made his money off the backs of Jews by ripping them off as he would overcharge them for the tax that he had to collect for the Roman government. And he could ch- charge as much as he wanted to. As long as the Romans got their money, he could, he could really, he could milk his own people to get as much money as he wanted. And he did. He's probably the last guy that you would want to be a part of your team to go change the world. And then we have James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. What's interesting about those guys? Let's just be honest. Absolutely nothing. Seriously. You don't find hardly anything else mentioned in Scripture about these guys. You know, no offense if your name is Thaddeus, but... I don't hear too many parents going, yeah, we've picked the perfect name for our son, Thaddeus. Now, there might be a Thaddeus. I apologize if you're here today. But it's, you know, if you go on the internet and say, what's the top 10 names that parents are, you know, Thaddeus doesn't make even top 100. Matthew does. Paul does. Peter does. John does. Those are good Christian names, right? But Thaddeus, uh, he didn't have a big following, does he? Why? Because we don't hear much about him. You think, wait, if this guy's going to change the world, don't you think we'd hear him over and over and over and over again? All 12 of these guys would have been prominent in every aspect of Scripture. There's a handful that we see repeated over and over again, but the others we don't. And then you got Simon the Zealot. What was he zealous about? Does anybody know? He was a pretty passionate guy, obviously, what can pick up. I don't know what was in Jesus' thinking. Maybe, you know, this guy's pretty passionate. Maybe he just needs to be redirected in what really his passion should be. I don't know. He was so passionate, we don't even know what he was passionate about. I'm not trying to diss the apostles, Okay. But I'm wanting you and I to understand these are the people Jesus picked. And then you have Judas Iscariot. The guy was greedy. The guy was dishonest. And obviously we know if he was so greedy, he actually betrayed Jesus for money. This is Jesus' top 12. Just think about it for a minute. Let's just, just step away from Scripture for just a moment. Let's say somebody comes to you and says, Listen, I want you to go change the world and you can pick 12 people. Who are you going to pick? Let's say you're going to pick Bill Gates. He's got a lot of money, and in his older age, he's getting more generous. That's a good guy. I'm going to pick him, right? I'm going to pick Michael Jordan. He's got a lot of influence globally, and people kind of listen to him because he was a great athlete. I'll pick him. I don't know who is it for you, what other athlete. You're going to pick people with influence, with skill, with talent, good looks. Why? Because you've got you to make sure you win people over to Jesus, right? How come none of those people ever make it on Jesus' list? Because it's not about us. It's about God's power through us. 
And your ability to say yes to God's mission is not based on your ability to make it happen. It's based on your ability to surrender and say, yes, I will do this because you can do this through me. And that's what we want to talk about. God uses people who are simply willing, not people who are talented. Now you think, well, hey, some of you might think, I'm pretty talented. That means God's not going to use me. No, he'll use the talented and the untalented, the common and the uncommon, the wealthy and the poor. He just looks for people who are willing. So then the shift, how do you and I respond to the invitation? I know this is not an easy message this morning, but this is, again, we have to grasp the fact that this is the shift. Every one of us, if you said yes to Jesus, is a missionary. We have to see our lives and ourselves differently. So responding to the invitation, the first question that comes out of this is, have I witnessed Jesus working in my life? This is taking from what we just went through in the first few verses here. The same thing that was coming to the disciples is the same thing that's coming to us. Jesus was saying, listen, you've been with me for all this time. You've seen what's happened. You've seen my work in your life. Now it's time for you to live that out. It's time for you to see that happen in the lives of other people. So ask this question to yourself this morning. Have I seen Jesus work in my life? Now, I'm not saying, you know, some of you say, well, I don't have a very good testimony. I mean, I can, there's somebody, you know, a guy like raised from the dead and they had an addiction and he set him free and they were living like, like, they were living like hell and now they're living like heaven. I don't have that kind of testimony. God, no, it's whatever degree God has worked in your life through the power of Jesus. And most of us can say, yeah, I've seen him do something in my life. I've seen him change something. I've seen him forgive me. I've seen, I've seen something. The reason we ask that question is because that's who Jesus calls. He calls people who have experienced his work in their life. He doesn't just call us to be saved. He calls us to mission. See, this is the thing, and we'll talk about this in a moment. You and I get the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus deposits the Holy Spirit when we say yes to him. So we have his spiritual DNA in us. And in that DNA spiritually is this thing called mission, that if you've really chosen to follow Jesus, you can't get away from it. It's in you. It's the natural outflow of following Jesus. If it's not there, then there's something missing in the process. I've shared the story about Michelle Gallup and Newberg, who we became good friends with, who came into the children and women's shelter that we had in the city, and she came in as an, a, a devout atheist. I, I don't believe in God. I don't want any of your Christian stuff. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I just need me and my kids to get off the street. That was her context of coming into the shelter. And everyone respected her. Nobody tried to shove the gospel down her throat. No one forced a Bible on her. They just loved her and her kids. They fed them. They gave them a roof over their head. They cared for them. They built relationship. That's all they did. And after three or four months, she finally came to this realization, there must be a God for these people who don't even know me to actually love me and my kids. And that was the beginning of her journey to eventually she made a com- commitment to follow Jesus with her life. Watched her get baptized. And then within probably, I think it was about a year or so, from when she came in as a devout atheist living on the street to about a year or so later, now knowing Jesus, you know what she was doing? She was now serving in that same shelter that took her off the street, helping to mentor other women who were coming from broken backgrounds like her. And why did she do that? Because in that one year, she had experienced the work of Jesus in her life, so much so that it drove her to mission. Her life was no longer her own. Her life was about helping other people be reconciled back to God through Jesus. That's what happens. And that's why, ask the question today, have I experienced the work of Jesus? Yes, then God's called me. Then he's called me to see that happen in the lives of other people, to use the journey that I've been on. Second question, in terms of responding to his invitation, is what has been my response to mission? 
historically in your life, when you hear the term missionary or when you hear missions, is there a disconnect? Because for most of us, there is. Oh, yeah, let's hear the missionary or let's talk about missions. It's always somebody else, someplace else, but not me. Asking that question. Remember, Matthew wrote, Jesus called. In your face, face face-to-face, draft. You're joining me. You're on my team. This is where we're going, so get on board. That's basically what he was saying to his disciples. He says that to us today. Experiencing God's grace means that you and I are conveyors of God's grace. We don't get to have it all for us and hog it. We have to share what we've been given to other people. So you and I have to understand there's a process of when you and I come to follow Jesus, there's a process of dying. It is. It's a death. It's a death to the way that we used to live our life. It's a death to the way that we used to think. It's a death of all the things we thought our life was supposed to be about. We're laying that down because Jesus has a better way. He has forgiveness and grace and mercy, and he has something of purpose that you and I can never experience apart from him. He has that, but that means you and I have to realize we're dead to our own agenda for life. But, you know, we keep trying to resurrect it, and it's miserable. We keep trying to make our own life work, and it's miserable. Look at the culture we live in. Seriously. What we see as the pinnacle of our culture is nothing that you and I would really want. Fame and money and influence and all those things. And what? What goes with that? Brokenness, devastation, addiction, dishonesty. That's our culture. The people who get paid the most money in our culture are the most broken people, for the most part. It's true. Why? Because we think, oh, we can have all that. But you and I have to separate ourselves from God to do that and live apart from him. But God's called us to be what? Reconciled back to him. So put it this way. See, Paul got it when Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified. So I've been put to death with Christ, and I no longer live. That's hard. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying? When I say yes to Jesus, guess what? I died on the cross too. Not for my sins, but my old way of living died. And what's left is the life that Jesus wants to live through me. That's what's left. That's all. You and I can't keep going back and resurrecting the old stuff. It just doesn't work. It's dead. A dead person doesn't have rights. A dead person doesn't have an agenda. A dead person doesn't get up in the morning, do they? Why? Because they're dead. And if you and I look at our old life, that's dead, then I don't have to go back there. Then what's now, what's alive, is what Jesus wants to do through me and in me today that is bigger than myself. There's a light that has to come on for us. I've been in the church long enough. I've been raised in the church. I've seen it happen. It happened for me about 12 years ago. This is after Bible college. This is after being raised in a Christian household. This is after being raised by a dad who's a missiologist who travels the world presenting the gospel and training other leaders to do so. It took me until I was an adult to figure out that God's mission is not just for missionaries. God's mission is for everyone because everyone is a missionary. The light went on for me. I asked permission. Uh, Kim and I were talking about this, and her, her light went on about six years ago, about five or six years ago. Same thing, raised in a Christian household, experienced salvation, looking forward to heaven, trying to live a good moral life, you know, all the things that we do as Christians, all that. Mary's a pastor, you know, she goes to Bible college, she's in ministry with me, and not till five or six years ago, we were going through 
a journey in our church about finding God's mission in the world and what he was up to. And we're reading passages like Luke 4 and Matthew 28 and Matthew 24, all these things that talk about mission. And as she's reading through those, the light goes on. And she says, wait a second. I've always read all these passages in reference to other people. Why have I done that? And for the first time in her life, she started reading the scriptures and realized God's talking to me. He's saying that my, his mission is my mission in my life, and a light went on for her. I don't know where you are in your journey in following Jesus or your maturity or where you're at, but for each one of us, that light has to come on. For some people, the light comes on immediately when you come to know Jesus. For others, we take a little longer, but I'm praying that now and through this journey as a church, the light comes on. I've seen it happen before. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, you get ignited and on fire not to be crazy and out of control, but to be passionate witnesses for Jesus that cannot be stopped because the power of God is working through you. That's my heart for our church. That's my heart for the world. There's so much at stake for us. Going on to the third thing of responding to this invitation is ask this question, have I recognized Jesus' authority and power in my life? Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's about to give them the power and authority. What is he going to give them? He's going to give them part of it right there, but he's going to give them the fullness of it in Acts chapter 1 and 2. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers that is given in a way that brings power so that ultimately we can accomplish God's mission of reconciling people back to God through Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's going on there? See, just catch the picture here. So Jesus spends three, three years in intense ministry. He dies. He rises from the dead. He's going back to the Father. He's got about 500 people that have started kind of following after that. They've seen him. And now they get together and they're ready to go do what he's called them to do. But he says, wait. Why does he say wait? I'm convinced because if they went out without his power and authority, they would have failed miserably. What has he said? Wait until you receive power. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, they receive power, and what is the result? Let me tell you, this is the hang-up. Let me just give you a little aside here. We are considered a Pentecostal church. We're part of the four-square denomination. And as a pastor over the years, this has been one of my biggest issues overall. We go to the two far corners when it comes to Pentecost and comes to understanding what it means to be Pentecostal. And that is we run from it because we're freaked out by it, or we run and we just become freaks by it. That's what happens. We go to these two extremes. And both of them, both of those extremes miss the point. The point of the Holy Spirit is not seen in the first five or six verses of Acts chapter 2. That's where... Fire comes into the room, separates, and descends on the believers, and they speak in tongues. That is powerful. That is incredible. And the gift of tongues is something that God does bestow on people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the whole emphasis of what happens in Acts chapter 2 is what happens after that. People start speaking a language they don't understand, but other people who do know that language understand it. Peter gets up. Remember the guy who had foot and mouth disease and kept doing that over and over? He gets up and in a way he explains clearly what the prophet Joel had prophesied years before and said, yeah, that, this, that's right now. What Joel was talking about, that's this. And as a result, 3,000 people make commitments to follow Jesus and are baptized in one day. 
That's the result. Why? Because Peter found a way how to speak good? No, because he figured out that he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you read on the rest of the book of Acts, and it's crazy. It's the power of God showing up in people's lives. You and I need that. You and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Before we started first service today, those leaders who were facilitating the service today were in the mother's crying room on our knees praying that God's Spirit would fill us. Because the last thing that we want to do is do something within our power today. The last thing that I want to do as a pastor is bore you and waste your time and just do a service and do church. That is the last thing that we want to do. If we do that, we become a miserable failure. Unless God's Spirit is working in us here and outside these doors, then we might as well just quit and go somewhere else. Because that's what this is about. This is so important. Yeah, he's getting a little passionate, and the, the caffeine may be kicking in right now, okay? But the Holy Spirit, he's the most misunderstood person of the Godhead. We don't know what to do with him. We get freaked out by him. And that's why sometimes in Pentecostal churches, it's like, well, let's kind of dumb down the Holy Spirit so people don't get freaked out. But you and I need the Holy Spirit. Not, it, has, it doesn't have to do with what happens here. It has to do with what happens out there. And let me just give a little bit of clarification. One of the things I saw years ago that helped me to understand, even it was true in my own experience. So we understand. When you make a commitment to Jesus, the scriptures are pretty clear on this, you get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is put into you as a deposit for your future in heaven. You receive the Holy Spirit at the moment. Jesus deposits his spirit in you. But there's something that happens over time where eventually you have to get to the place where you fully surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. You get all the Spirit, but has the Holy Spirit gotten all of you? It's kind of like, this is the illustration I know years before I saw it, and that that made sense to me. It's like when you make chocolate milk. Okay, let's say you're using Hershey's chocolate syrup. So you pour a glass of milk, and then you pour the chocolate syrup, and what does it do? Sinks to the bottom. So what's on the bottom? All the chocolate, what's on top? All the milk. Is that chocolate milk? No, not really. It's chocolate and milk, but it's not chocolate milk. What has to happen? When you introduce a spoon and you start stirring, what happens? What was on the bottom starts to get stirred in what was on the top, and before you know it, it's not white and dark, it's brown. It's all mixed together, and now it's not just milk and chocolate. It's chocolate milk. I know you're like, that's really basic. I know, back to Sunday school, but for some people like me, that what's, that's what makes sense. That's what happens. You, if you said yes to Jesus, guess what? You have the DNA of Jesus in you through the Holy Spirit, and he's waiting to be stirred up in you. And the way he gets stirred up in you is when you finally live a life outside of yourself about his mission. And then what happens is you get stirred up into power, and God does amazing things through your life. If you want to discover the work of the Holy Spirit, go out and serve. Go out and live on mission. Go live beyond yourself, because when you finally get to the end of yourself, you'll discover all that's left is God's power. That's what you saw these 12 guys do is they finally got to the end of themselves. Let's say actually 12 minus 1, because we know that what Judas did. But then Paul kicks in and kind of takes his spot, so we still got 12. So they move forward. What happened? They get to the end of themselves, and God's power shows up. Some of us want the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, but we don't want to live to the end of ourselves. In order to accomplish God's mission, we have to live to the end of ourselves. And then the final thing, the final responding to his invitation, is asking this question, have I disqualified myself from Jesus' mission? I can guarantee you, pretty sure, that when Jesus starts having this conversation with his disciples 2,000 years ago, already in their mind, they're disqualifying themselves. They've watched him do miracles. They've watched him do some crazy stuff. And they're thinking, I can't do that. Does Jesus know who he's talking about? I think he's got the wrong guys here. 
I mean, can you imagine thinking, I'm a fisherman. I don't know anything about this. I'm, he's a rabbi. I'm not a rabbi. I didn't go to school. I didn't study any of this. I don't know what I'm doing. And he's now wanting me to do miracles like he did miracles. I think he's got the wrong guy. See, you and I have had that internal conversation before. We have it just like they had it. See, we have a tendency to disqualify ourselves before God ever disqualifies us. God doesn't disqualify us from his mission. He doesn't. Now, you and I may disqualify ourselves from certain places of leadership, but you and I never disqualify ourselves from God's mission. Only God can do that. And God doesn't do that. If he, if he waited for us to be just right, then his mission would never be accomplished. Except for Jesus himself, God's never used a perfect person because there isn't any. We're all broken. So you and I have disqualifiers. This is, first one is perfection. That's the first thing that, I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect. I mean, if you know the crap in my life, sorry, little strong term this morning. Yeah, it's not Hebrew. It's just my vernacular, okay? It's in our life. It's all of us. We have it all. And you think, man, if you really knew what was going on, God couldn't use me to do that. So we start disqualifying saying, God, it's like, it's the Moses syndrome. Oh God, you you called me to go lead Israel out of Egypt. You got the wrong guy. I I, I, I stutter. And what does God do? I I don't care if you stutter or not. So as an excuse, he says, here, take your brother Aaron. Aaron can talk for you because you can't get over your starting. I'm still going to use you. See, it's the same thing. You and I disqualify ourselves. You know what another disqualifier is? Talent. We look around the, the room or we look around and we think, well, that person, they've got it. Man, they've really got the gifts and I only wish I had the gifts that they have. I wish I had the talent. If I did, then I could really do something God, but I'm not talented like them. I can't do it. And because of that, I, why even try? I mean, you know, I, I'm just not good enough. Look at the 12 Jesus picked. Most of them were not educated. Most of them weren't really smart. Most of them weren't the most talented per- person. They were simply willing. And you know the other one that's a huge one, huge disqualifier, is fear. Let's just be honest. We're scared to death of God's mission. Some of us are scared that God's going to mess up our life. Honest. You know why? Because we made him additional. He said, come join my party, but don't change the rules. And Jesus says, no, I don't play by those rules. You come join my party because that's the only party in town. That's the way it works. But you and I say, oh, we want to make him additional. So we're afraid the more he gets in our life, he's going to mess it up. Please let Jesus mess you up. We need to let him mess us up because he knows something that we don't. He knows what life is. We don't. And if you and I will be willing to get beyond that, sometimes we're just scared. You're afraid to talk to the person across the street, let alone travel across the world. You're afraid to have a spiritual conversation with your coworker because they might think that you're weird or they might reject you. You're afraid to go into a laundromat and do laundry love or go to the Samaritan Center or go down to the Dream Center. Why? Because people are different than you. And so you're afraid and fear becomes the biggest hindrance because that's a disqualifier. I'm too afraid. I don't want to do that. I'm scared. And then we come up with some other excuse like I'm too busy. Too busy? If we're too busy for God's mission, then we're busy doing the wrong thing. You're getting it all out today, okay? I'm giving you the fire hose version. I apologize, okay? You can recover in the next week or two, all right? But this is where we're at. Why is this so important? I'll close with a couple things. This is what's absolutely insane. In our lifetime, we can accomplish Jesus' mission. Think, oh, come on, really? Yeah. Jesus, we'll talk about it in a couple months. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, But this gospel will be preached to all nations. That means every people group. And then the end will come. What is he talking about? When everybody in their language and in their culture has an opportunity to hear the gospel, that's when the end comes. That's when Jesus comes back. That's what he's saying. 
That means that you and I, this is what's crazy, the God of the universe looks at you and I in our brokenness and our humanity and says, by the way, you play a part in my mission. In fact, you can kind of speed it up. And if you and I understand that, not only in our lifetime, in the next decade, we could reach the world. Not just new hope. The global body of Christ could do this. It's happening worldwide right now. There's anywhere between, it depends your estimates, between probably three on the low end and maybe eight or ten on the high end, thousand unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel and don't even know who Jesus is because it hasn't penetrated their culture or their language yet or their subculture. Once those groups are reached and the gospel's penetrated, that's when it ends. We can do this in our in, in a decade that could happen because there's a couple billion Christians around the world and if we all got ignited by the Holy Spirit, we could be done tomorrow. Sounds good to me. I like to go see Jesus and have a bunch of billions of other people be reconciled back to God, and they get to go see Jesus. Anybody want to come with? I think that would be a good thing, yeah? Let me close with this. You're sitting in a church right now that was started in 1923. No, not New Hope, but Foursquare. Let me explain something to you about being qualified for ministry. See, you, you are sitting in a church that if you were to let's say, rewind the clock about uh, 90 to 100 years, the person who started the Foursquare Church would have been disqualified by all of us. She wouldn't have made the cut. You and I wouldn't be here today. So, oh, well, you know, I came from another church. You wouldn't be in this church right now. You wouldn't be a part of what God is doing through Foursquare. And I know most of we're not, you know, we're not here because we're here. We're here to follow Jesus, and we happen to be a part of the Foursquare family. I understand that. But let me just for a moment, let me just talk to you about, talk to you about Amy, Amy, Amy Silver McPherson, who's the founder of Foursquare. Talk about being disqualified on every level to do anything for God. She would be disqualified according to our standards. She is an immigrant from Canada, not even a U.S. citizen. So she marries when she's really young. She ends up going to China with her husband, Robert. Robert contracts malaria shortly after arriving in China. He dies so now, she's a single mom. She has a baby in China. I've told the story before. She comes back to the U.S. She marries again. So now this is back in the 19, early 1900s. She's a woman. Women didn't do anything in ministry, in church, or evangelistically, anything. You didn't see it in that, at that time. So she's married, and she's living as a housewife, which she didn't feel like that's what she was supposed to be doing, but she tried to go along with it. Nothing, there's wrong, nothing wrong with being a housewife. Hear me, please. But she, that's not what it's God called her to do. So eventually, she begins to preach and to pray for people. And then she begins traveling doing that. And people start getting saved. And people start getting healed. And people start getting freed from demons. And all kind of amazing things happen. And through this kind of traveling thing, God eventually tells her, no, you need to have a home base. So that's when she starts Angela's Temple. And that's when Foursquare is birthed in 1923. Now, I want you just to think about, this is Amy. This is the one that found it. So this is her life. She's a woman who's an immigrant, who's a single mom, who in her lifetime was married three times and divorced twice. Uh Uh-oh, disqualified. God can't use her. She's been divorced. She's made bad mistakes. She's done wrong things. God can't use her. How many of us are thinking that right away? She's a woman. God can't use a woman. I know there's all kind of passages in the Bible about how women are... Let God figure out if he's going to use a woman or not, okay? Because he's used, he used her. That's why we're here. This is what's crazy. She's a little controversial. 
little crazy in some of the stuff she does, offends people sometimes, tries to compete with Hollywood a little bit, actually outdoes Hollywood a little bit at some times, does all these amazing things, all these crazy things. People either loved her or they hated her. But she shaped evangelicalism in the 1900s more than any other figure. There's books written on it. My, ne- my, my cousin wrote a book on her influence that many churches who are non-Pentecostal and don't believe in women in ministry have been shaped because of what she did 100 years ago. It's crazy. Now today, fast forward, Foursquare, globally. Seven and a half million people are a part of Foursquare churches in 136 different countries. Millions of people in the last 90 to 100 years have come to Christ because of Foursquare. Because of a woman who heard the call of God to live beyond herself, even though everybody disqualified her and said, God, I'll do what you want me to do, even though I'm imperfect and I'm broken and I'm going to make mistakes, and God still used her. See, Amy's story is our story. Amy's story is the story throughout the scriptures. Read through the Old Testament. Find the perfect person that God used. You won't find them. They're all broken. They all fail. But what does God do? He redeems brokenness, and he uses people and reconciles them back to God so that they can do the same in the lives of other people. So as we close, and you're going to hear a song and sing a song in just a moment, this words of commitment, choosing to follow Jesus with their life. But I want to encourage you, shift your thinking. If you've said yes to Jesus, you have become a missionary. And all that's left is who and where. And God will determine that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words that you inspired Matthew to record about your life. And in, Lord, I know in the weeks ahead as, ahead, as we look at your specific words of what you charged your disciples with, Lord, you said that 2,000 years ago because you knew it would apply to us today. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to begin to see ourselves differently. Lord, change our understanding of what it means to follow you. That, Lord, we are following you which is difficult to understand, but we're following you to die so that we can live. And following you, death comes first, then comes life. Lord, we so many times want life to come first, then death. No, death is not the end. Death is the beginning in following you. So Lord, I pray that we would die to our old way of living, our old mindset, the way we view our lives, that Lord, by your spirit, even though I know, Lord, I talk to people in between services, and there's this, this discomfort in us. Lord, I thank you for that discomfort because that means your spirit is working in us to get us to be a part of what you're doing. And so, Lord, would you allow that to happen, Lord, especially in these next few moments as we sing and then we head out into the real world. Holy Spirit, would you work in us to help us to be your missionaries, to fulfill your mission. In Jesus' name.